0: Welcome back to Bodies in the Bayou, Season 1, The Texas Killing Fields, Episode 5, Maria Johnson and Debbie Ackerman. Thanks for joining us today. We are going to cover another Galveston Island case. For those of you who do not know, Galveston Island is off the coast of Texas right outside of Houston. We did have a question from a listener who wanted to know what the population was in the 70s around the time of these murders.
1: That's a good question Morgan. So Galveston Island in the 1970s the population was roughly about 60,000. And comparing that to today's population, today's population of Galveston Island is about 50,000. So a little bit smaller than it was back then. But one of the things I think when you're talking about population of Galveston Island in that time period that you really have to keep in mind is what's going on in the island at the time because summer is going to increase the population quite a bit. You have a lot of vacation homes, a lot of people vacate vacationing in that area, um, RVs, and then also all the hotels are full. So that population can swell anywhere from what it is at 60,000 to double or even triple. If you have something like Mardi Gras going on on the island at the time, your population is three times that size. Um, So other events that come into town during the summer are going to increase that population exponentially. So when we talk about like Brenda Jones going missing right there around the beginning of July, one of the things that I think is important to note is that's going to be the height of the summer season. So you're going to have that population swelled quite a bit. And um, then when you talk about other things that are happening more in November and stuff, that would be more of a shoulder season for Galveston Island. You wouldn't have quite as large population there at that time. So With
0: that, I, I think we're going to head right on into the episode. Does you have anything else there? No, I don't think we had it.
1: any other listener questions, so I think we're going to head right into the episode. Thanks for asking, and as always, you know, Contact us on our Facebook page and let us know if you have any questions. Thank you. Debbie Ackerman and Maria Johnson were two good friends who met at Ball High School on Galveston Island. They were both 15-year-old Caucasian girls. Debbie was everybody's good friend. She was fun and a member of the um, student council and on the Whirlettes. Maria was relatively new to school, but had started to make friends easily. On Sunday night, November 14th, 1971, the girls spent the night at Maria's house, and then they got up on Monday morning excited to have a day of adventure on Galveston Island it was a school holiday because it was a teacher work day and so they were hanging going to hang out with friends and go exploring they were seen around noon at the port holiday mall and then later on in the afternoon they were seen at the yacht club a um it was it was found that they had decided to go hitchhiking, and so they hitchhiked from Galveston Island to Texas City. Texas City and Galveston Island are about uh, 20 minutes from each other by uh, by car, so they went to Texas City. We don't have any reports, really, of what they did in Texas City that day, who they met up with. Um, I think that would be helpful, but we don't. You know, none of that has has come in the newspapers where we can see that. And because this is still considered an open case, we're not able to ascertain open records on this case. But what we what we do know is that they went to Texas City and then they hitchhiked. and they went to Texas City. They hitchhiked to Texas City, but they took a cab from Texas City back to Galveston. Returning late later on in the evening in Galveston, when they got to Galveston, they realized that they had left Debbie's purse in the um, cab. So they planned to hitchhike back to Texas City to retrieve the purse. And they were last seen on the seawall Boulevard, which is near the beach on 61st and seawall around 8 p.m. So there are a few later reports that do come up about the girls. One woman comes forward and claims she saw the girls um, get into a green pickup truck near the beach, hitching a ride. What we don't know in that report is what time that was. And since we're pretty sure that they hitchhiked twice, we can't tell if that was their original ride or... Not. Um, So if anybody knows any information of when that was, it would be very helpful. This is the last time that the girls are seen alive is on the seawall in Galveston Island. And that was around what 8 p.m. 8 p.m. Yeah. It's that evening that their that their parents report them missing to the police. And their friend that they
0: were visiting, did she say what vehicle
1: they got into? Or she- the woman who saw them get into the green truck, um, I just get that in newspaper reports that a woman saw them getting into a green truck. And she, in the newspaper reports, it does not say what time that was. Okay. Um, and uh, I just didn't know if it would help like narrow down which time it was. I think it, know? I think it would, would help, but unfortunately we just don't right. have that information. Um, and so they're reporting missing. Um, as far as I can tell, their case was taken relatively seriously because we had some other missing girls at that point. Um, but you know, we don't, we don't know what exactly. There is a, an an article in the newspaper when they're reporting missing that somebody is asking for information about them, but that's, That's the little bit of information that we have going on. We don't have any information that says, hey, we're looking for search people to come out and help us search. And, you know, it's just a a small blurb that says we're looking for information. Were they treated as runaways like the other girls previously have been? Yeah, I I just don't know. It is is certainly possible, but I just don't know. Um, I do know that police do say that Debbie often hitchhiked. You know, and so when they're looking for information, they are saying that they do know that the girls or at least that one of the girls was was somebody who would hitchhike at that time. Uh, It's a few days later when Marie Johnson's body is actually found in Turner's Bayou, which is located between Texas City and Dickinson essentially but it's closer to texas city than anything and uh, her body is found in turner's bayou by a fisherman when her body is found um she's only clothed with a shirt and her hands and feet are tied with crab line not tied like she got tangled up tied on purpose Tied. Mm -hmm. and then the next day after they find her body the police do go out with a large search crew to search the Turner's Bayou area. And they do find Debbie Ackerman's body in Turner's Bayou at that point in time, when they um, recover her body, they do find that she also has been tied, but she's been tied with shoelaces. Um, and that she also is not wearing any clothes below the waist. Um And then near the bank, when they find her body, they also find several other things. They do find a pair of rubber gloves. They find some clothing items that belong to both of the girls. And they find 38 caliber bullet casings Mm -hmm. or shells, I guess. Um, At the time, they interviewed several locals from that area, including several local fishermen. And what the local fishermen say about that is... The girls had to be put in the water near the footbridge that's out there that they couldn't have been put in the water like in Galveston Bay or in Dickinson Bayou or Moses Lake because it's a small inlet there. It's like a slip of an inlet. And the way that the tides go, you wouldn't have anything that would be able to push out or get in from those areas. And uh, so the fishermen in that area said they had to be in that area. And I think, you know, with their clothes being found there on the shore and a couple other things, you know, you can deduce that certainly they were found in that area. They also, because that piece of property where they're found and where those items are found, that piece of property is actually a um, piece of private property. It's owned by the Humble Oil Company. And it's behind a locked gate. Right. Um, We actually drove up there
0: to that area. We could not get through. Definitely is a dirt road. Right. Um, Very secluded. I mean,
1: you would have to know exactly where that is. I think that's a big thing for me, too, is that, um, you know, When we started looking into this case, we found out that there were a lot of people who were also kind of putting things on message boards and stuff like that, asking for how do you get to this area? You know, they knew that it was off a humble camp road, but they were unable to find it. And um, we were able to find it, but we were only able to get to the gate. Um, And when you get to that gate, it's clearly that you're not to go beyond it right
0: oh yeah it definitely says no trespassing uh-huh. so we have that conversation I'm like well can't we just go right over here like it clearly says no trespassing so it's definitely private property uh-huh. um but you cannot see the the bayou there no the you can't you, see the you water from you there. definitely cannot see the water so from where we were you cannot see where, where they this happened been, yeah mm-hmm um so it was still a stretch beyond where mm-hmm. that gate is and i'm sh- pretty sure that's where the gate was then too
1: right it just makes sense yeah and that's, that's probably that property line yeah that's and and when we were there there are several locks on that gate too mm-hmm. and it's not a small gate you know i'm i'm familiar with you know, ranching, right. And that type of thing. You're familiar with that too. I mean, we're, we're all familiar with barbed wire gate fences, those type of, of gates, smaller gates, but this is a, it's a large industrial gate and it would not have been, it's something that really clearly tells you you're not to, not to pass. Um, So that was the one thing with that was that the gate but um there is a residence right there right next to
0: it yeah I'm, i mean right next to it because we thought i wonder how many times they get asked about you know can we go back can there we go back there yeah um it didn't appear that anybody was home when we were there for us to ask so um um that just wasn't an option when we were out there. Plus it was right. it was a
1: pretty rainy day that day too. Well, and the residence does not appear, it's off to the side, so the residence does not appear to be part of it, but it does appear like the residence probably was there at that time. Right. And it definitely looks like a service
0: road. Right. If I had to describe that. And actually we do have um, some video or some recordings at uh-huh. the time that we did take. So maybe we should go back and listen to that and how we describe it then. But it definitely looks like a service road. Yeah driving your car down there, we were like, holy cow, we definitely need to come back in the truck, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Because it, it's just not, you just had to have a reason to be out there, in my opinion. And and on that note, right, they said either you're going out there on that road or you're coming in on boats. Right,
1: yeah, so that's that's the only two ways you access that area is either you come up from from the Galveston Bay and that area in there, Or you on a small boat, which, you know, it's a little confusing here because, you know, you wouldn't want to have a a, like you're not going to take a small boat from Galveston Island all the way through the bay and the shipping channel to the access location that you're looking for there. Right. Right. Because. I think that would be pretty dangerous there. I think so for sure. I think, I think you're looking, you know, that would be, I mean, I guess it's possible, but it doesn't seem like that would be the type of boat that you would take. So it's a really small inlet into the area that we're talking about. Right. And so then your second option is to take the road, which according to the caretakers of that property for the humble oil, uh, company, that gate was locked on Monday night and when they arrived on Tuesday morning, it was not locked. And so I think we have some questions on that. We definitely went back and forth about um, there's no
0: mention of the gate being vandalized, so it made us question if it was somebody that had access. Right. Whether a worker, um, you know, somebody that may have had a key. I mean, we don't, we don't know because they don't mention, I mean, it's not like it was ripped off or beaten
1: or bent or, you know, there's no reports of that. Yeah. They don't say anything in any of the reports about the, the gate being damaged in any way or fencing being damaged in any way out there. All they're saying is it was locked on Monday night. And when they returned the next day on Tuesday morning, that gate was left open and unlocked and so when you drive back there when you're in that location to me it is not the area that you would just be driving around looking for somewhere secluded i think you had to know that it was back there right you know you had to know that that you could access it you had to know that it was back there and so that's kind of one thing because the other thing that we talked about is um you know, how did they get there? And we are definitely thinking that they drove in there because of the, um, because of the gate. So after a few days, the medical examiner comes forward, um, Warren lemons, and he makes a statement to the press. And he says that both girls were shot twice. That, um, They were um, that, I'm sorry, (laughs) both girls were shot twice. That they were probably kneeling at the time that they were shot. That they were probably kneeling right next to each other. That um, Maria was shot in the top of the head and the bullet exited through her chin. And that the second shot entered the side of her neck and exited through the back of her neck. That Debbie was shot in the front of the chin exiting her left shoulder and the second shot entered her back and went through her lungs lodging in a rib so i think you know as we talked about that him saying that they were kneeling you know um it's just it's tragic to think that of them out there you know in that type of position, kneeling with their hands tied behind their back. And, and from, from what we can tell, it looks like they probably were on the shoreline at that. It does take several days later for him to come forward and say that the girls had probably been raped. Right. You know, I think what he says is that there was sexual activity um, that both girls had had shortly before their deaths that there was bruising on the bodies but without being able to talk to them essentially he can't say that they were raped but it's it's certainly you know in our mind you know they were they were sexually assaulted by whoever their attacker was I think another very important thing that we have to talk about is one other incident that I found that to me clearly ties to this. So Leslie White, who was 19 years old at the time, was hitchhiking on Galveston Island. She lived in Houston, so she was looking for a ride from Galveston Island to Houston. She was picked up by a man in a green truck, and the man in the green truck picked her up on the seawall boulevard around noon on the exact same day that... Debbie Johnson, Debbie, I'm sorry, Debbie Ackerman and Maria Johnson go missing. And she says that the man started to talk to her about how he's looking for a place to take her, how he was gonna rape her, and he began to drive around looking for a secluded place. She became so frightened while the truck was still moving, she opened the door and leaped out of the truck. And she suffered a pretty bad head injury and was in the hospital at still in the hospital at the time that the girls were actually found. So it was a pretty significant head injury to me. I think she's very lucky.
0: Right. Obviously there were some cues to her to know that her life was in danger. Right. You know, that she was in some, some danger with whoever she got the ride from um, that she fled yes. at all costs. At all costs. Yeah. And I believe, you know, whoever may have done that with her still had that urge and had to find some,
1: somebody else. Well, and I think, you know, sometimes things come up, somebody says, Oh, maybe as a case great gains notoriety or something like that. You have, Other people who say, oh, let me tell you what happened to me. And it probably happened the same day. But I think with this incident, we know this happened the same day. We know that reports were taken from her, that very early on, they have linked these two things together. And so it's not somebody coming 10 or 20 years later and telling something that they think may be related. This is something that was going on at that time where cops were interviewing her and trying to get more and more information from her because they knew this was related to this crime. Right. And uh, and so again, this does come back into play that you have this person in a green pickup truck, you know, and then you have the report of the person in the, um, who says that they were picked up by the green pickup truck. And, but we don't know any more about whatever happened to Leslie White, um or where where she is today so you know just that she was very lucky to have gotten away from this person. Oh you would think she would have given a description of this person. I don't know I don't know that she didn't you know again that comes back to you know open records um police officers were talking to her but a description never other than looking for the green pickup a ne- description never got into the news Mm-hmm. papers you know you don't see like an artist sketch or description or anything like that so you know all we have is to go off of you know what's in the newspapers at the time and maybe with the with the head injury you know and that's a lot of trauma hmm right so she may not have been able to give a very good description of this person mm-hmm. so or one that they felt like they could use And then, you know, the case goes cold relatively quickly. I mean, cops do arrest two people from Ohio that they thought may have been connected to this case and let them go, but um, kind of ruled them out. And uh, they do question um, several other individuals to try to find out information, but you don't find anything out on this case for almost another year. And then all of a sudden, what you find is that the uh, Texas city police department is sending the bullet that was lodged in um, Debbie Ackerman's lungs to Austin to be compared to another bullet up there. All right.
0: And <laughs> that was another rabbit hole to go down. Yes. Because it, was being compared with some other cases that the McCarry
1: McCarry yeah McCurry.
0: McCarrie. Yeah. They actually were an entire family. They referred to them as a clan that were mur- murdering murdering yeah,
1: serial killers. Serial killers, yes. yes. The whole family.
0: Yes. Um
1: so in that family you have Carolyn, she's the wife of Sherman McCurry. And then you have a daughter, Ginger Taylor, who was 19 at the time. And then a, a son-in-law, um, Raymond Carler, Carl Taylor, and I think he's 38. And then the McCurries also have a son, Daniel. And those five members of that family went on a rampage across several states. We know Utah, Colorado, Texas. And I believe Florida, right? right. They were, um, and so they went on a rampage of robbing people, and kidnapping these young women, torturing, raping, and killing them. Mm-hmm. And the closest case that that we found reference to was actually the one up in in Austin. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't
0: seem that they came. So I mean, there was no evidence that they came any. Farther south,
1: not that I could find. No, you know, me I mean, we
0: we certainly find that. And I mean, there's just name after name.
1: Yeah, after name with them, it's I think they're attributed to over twenty people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the McCurrys do not confess, so it's not like we managed to have all of this great amount of information where they start saying, "Oh, they were here, they were there." You know, Austin is how many hours away? Four maybe. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that it's unheard of that they could have been down here, but, um, and it doesn't necessarily fit their MO because there are two of them and what we didn't see on their, um, kidnapping and, and murder spree was them kidnapping two people at the same Mm -hmm. time. They didn't kidnap pairs. Um, and so that
0: is kind of, they did tend to be a little older. Okay. You know their victims seem to be a little older than
1: i think they do have one 19 year old though yeah um so it's it you know i think we're not going to cover the whole saga of the McCurry's. I think that's a podcast in itself um, because there is, is so much to unpack there with, with the family. When the family is finally arrested, they're actually in California. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they, they are sentenced on a number of crimes, you know, the, the daughter, the, um, but they definitely lived
0: on the grid. Yeah. You know, they weren't off the gridders at all. I mean, they, they, apparently were living quite the lavish lavish lifestyle when they California, were arrested yeah. for
1: unrelated crimes. But um. So the daughter, Ginger, Carolyn, um, they served time for some robberies, some aiding and abetting. Um, and as far as I can tell, they both die in prison. They're, they did both have uh, children, other children, young children, and those children were um, put into the system and a later adopted and then um, they uh sherman daniel and raymond were all tried for one of the the murders that they had and um i think all but daniel actually dies in prison right mm-hmm. um all i can say about this is you know i think that texas city was onto something i think right. it was probably good that they were tracking down that lead what what did tie a lot of the cases with the Mercury family together actually was ballistics Mm -hmm. they were using the same guns and the same um crimes so had ballistics come back and actually tied these serial killers to this case i don't think we would have an open case today you know i think Mm -hmm. we who have done it um but they were definitely you know texas city police
0: were you know looking into this. yeah. I mean, they didn't give up at that point and were taking any leads they could get, but there had to be, I believe something that made them think, Hey, this, they could be linked together. So let's,
1: you know, let's try and see. And certainly they did try to see it through ballistics. You know, when I came across this case, I honestly started looking at several of our cases up here thinking, you know, maybe they're not tied to to this case but I looked at Colette Wilson and Gloria Gonzalez too the only thing about that is because they're kind of together I really felt like they wouldn't be with this I you know the family didn't seem to be like picking one person up and then like having a kind of a a place where they lived they were they were pretty transient you know when they were when they were doing this type of crime and so I didn't although i did kind of think to myself you know should there be other ones that we're looking at i think for that you know we didn't see any connection there and then i you know the case really at that point in time you know grows goes pretty cold i think in the the last couple of years um i know in 2019 a announcement came out from the Texas City Police Department that they were reopening this case and looking into this case. Um, at that point in time, there was a lot of speculation that they were doing DNA testing on items that they had. From what we can tell in newspaper reports, they would have had quite a few items to possibly test. Right, you know they have the girls themselves who he says there is sexual activity. And so maybe there's a possibility that there was something found there. You know, I know they were in the water for several days, but I mean, there might be the possibility of something there. There are bindings. we still on them.
0: There's their clothes that were on the, the side. Yes.
1: Of the uh, embankment there. The gloves. And the gloves. Yeah. So, you know, my hope is that, that they did have DNA through that. And, That maybe they'll make a link to other cases and possibly we could see this case solved. But right now, we haven't heard anything in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. So, and then Amy.
0: All right, Gretchen. So I know a lot of our listeners, and myself included, have watched the A&E special that covers this and based on your research and some of the things that they said they do kind of contradict themselves so I guess I'm asking like where I guess your perspective is coming from versus theirs
1: well I think there are a couple things um the difference between the A&E special and maybe where we're coming from there are it's not necessarily a contradiction. Maybe it's, um, looking at at the same facts probably a little bit differently, but I mean, it's essentially the most of the facts are, are relatively the same. They're looking at one specific individual who they suspect is the suspect in this case. And I, you know, for our listeners, that would be Harold Lee Bell or Edward Harold Lee Bell. Um, and we haven't really covered him yet. I, we plan to do some covering about him at a later time, but I don't think we feel like we're ready to bring that in yet. I don't think we want to introduce him yet just because we do
0: want to um, explore through a different lens right. um, per se, other possibilities. Um,
1: well, and I think, you often, know, one of the, yeah, you know. I think one of the things you and I talked about was Amy did a great job of exploring him you know, and and really putting him out here as a, as a suspect. And so we didn't want the podcast to just be kind of a repeat of what they did. But then, you know, I think the investigator in the podcast has access to some, I mean, the investigator in the documentary has access to some files that we don't have access to. He does have access to law enforcement files um, that we're not able to access, but It does to me seem like that anything that doesn't fit the narrative gets left out. Right. You know, I did notice that just since we,
0: since I've seen that, and then just through what we've researched along the way, I'm like, this is not even mentioned in some of these areas. Like it, it, almost like it didn't exist, but it's right there, from an Emmy or from a officer or you know different people that
1: are reporting this right yeah so so, you know i mean you can you can go back with their suspect all the way to colette wilson and gabriella or gloria gonzalez and one of the clear things that that doesn't mention one of the i'm sorry we had a little interference outside but one of the clear things that doesn't get mentioned there is that there were other suspects in that case right and then um you know, you and I had a long discussion about this particular person being a suspect in Brenda Jones's case, right. which was earlier. Um, and I think you had some comments about that. You actually believed that he could be a pretty clear suspect in Brenda Jones's case because he was involved in that hospital.
0: Right. I mean, he um, was there seeking treatment, right, and had married underage girls from there. You know, raped an individual that was there and it's possible that they could have crossed paths Mm -hmm. and we went round and round about this and I'm like yeah but you know it's possible I mean it is the farther we've come along in
1: this it's a stretch for me now so I think we will cover some more possibilities about him later and I think we're going to delve deeper into some of those thoughts could he be connected to these cases right are they on the right track there But I think as far as this case goes, because they covered a lot about this case and the differences with this case on what they're covering is it is the green truck and Leslie White is never mentioned or never spoken about in that case. And I think the reason that that is happening is that if you're looking at a specific suspect suspect. And this being that Pacific suspect that doesn't fit that narrative. Right. And, and that's s- when they
0: start bringing up the white man, the
1: white okay. man. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously they have found in the files, somebody who says that the girls could have been abducted by a white man. And I believe that that's possible and true. Um, It can be totally possible just because they have hitchhiked twice in one day. Twice in one day. So
0: it's absolutely possible.
1: The problem that I had with that was I couldn't find any mention of a white man prior to 2011. And that's a long period of time for that not to be mentioned. But again, I'm not looking at the files that he's looking at. So I think that you have to say... But they could have had that white van on day one and not wanted to release that to the public because they needed to keep that back. Another thing though that that we differ yeah. forty years later. Yeah. I mean, come forty
0: years later you need yeah. to mention that? I don't know i mean it's a possible it is a possibility i mean it could have gone lost in case file. I mean, yeah it's a possibility so but i would think you'd want to mention that as soon as possible so you can start tracking down any white van or any green truck or
1: whatever would be relevant right. to well and they were obviously on it with a green truck because it is mentioned and mentioned and mentioned right. and so they are looking for information on that green truck mm-hmm. at that point in 1970 and that's because they have leslie at that point
0: mm-hmm. you know yeah so
1: um and, and then the other thing that differs quite a bit is they believe that both girls were shot while standing in the water and the individual who shot them was standing above them on the footbridge. And what we're reporting is what the ME reported at the time, which were that both girls were kneeling. And I think we've talked back and forth about were they in the water? You know, is it a possibility that because whether or not you're kneeling or standing in the water, you're still going to have that trajectory of somebody above you, but I I have a hard time believing that they were standing in the water. I have a
0: hard time with that, too, and I think what we went back and forth about earlier today was there's no water in their lungs, so, uh-huh. you know, even... And I mean, it might be a stretch, but this is how my brain works is they're going to take that last gasp. If uh-huh. they're in the water, they're going to suck it in. You know, it seems like it would be in there, you know, um, and we do know the second shot. through um, Debbie Debbie was the fatal one. So the uh-huh. first one didn't kill her. Right. So if they were in the water, she would have been in there still fighting for her life. Yeah. So um, I,
1: I don't think that they were in the water. You know, the other reason that I don't think that they're in the water is because you have the casings on the bank, right? You know, and not on the footbridge, which if he shot him while standing above them on the footbridge, he would have possibly had the casings on the footbridge. But again, that could be the difference in newspaper reporting and to and reporting to law enforcement also and what law enforcement may have or may not have held back. I don't know. The one thing, though, that they do tell you in in the A&E documentary is that everything that this individual that they tell you that there are things that this individual confesses to in his letters that he writes to the DA confessing to these crimes, you know, and if you're not an, a watcher of this, this is all going to be like, not something that you kind of understand. But one of the things that they tell you is the information that he had was not released to the public. And what I can tell you is I have found the information that he has in early newspaper articles from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And so I don't believe that the information that he had, unless they're going to show you something different that they did not release in the documentary, unless they're going to show you something else. Now that it's come out two years later, that says this is the aha moment that shows you that he didn't know this and that's not in the paper. Everything that he has told us in these letters that has been released publicly, I can find in early newspaper accounts. And so, you know, it's just kind of a difference of, you know, what you're looking at, but I mean, it's not like we're not going to look into him and, but we didn't want the podcast to be about him. But I think, you know, now that we've gone a little bit farther down, and we've gotten into several of these victims who even online are tied to him, not just in the documentary. We felt like it was necessary to start to at least say, this is some of the things that we're seeing that differ. And some of the things that make us pause in a way to say, I don't know that I would say all of these, girls are killed by are the same uh, yeah or the yeah. same person or the same it's, person this yeah. <laughs> yeah and I think that's key too mm-hmm. you know when we first started this we were under the belief that Colette Wilson, Brenda Jones, Rhonda Johnson, Sharon Shaw, Gloria Gonzalez, Allison Craven, Debbie Ackerman and Marie Johnson were all killed by the same person right We believed that from the beginning when we looked at this, In that timeline, boom, 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 boom. We thought that they were all tied in. And we'd certainly love to hear from, you know, the people who are listening. But at this point, we're backing away from that theory.
0: Yeah. And you had recently asked me just in the last couple of weeks, like, do you still think that Bell could do all this? Mm -hmm. I don't think so. Uh, There's just too many. There's just. They're just also different. Yeah, You know, and I mean, and then we can't really go and say, yes, he did, when, you know, you've got self who's falsely confessed and, you know, different things going on there, too. So, um, I don't know, I just... I don't think that one person is responsible for all of them. No, but I think we'd love to hear from people, right. you know, who listen. And to I'm open minded. Like, yeah, if you can change my mind if you can show me the link. I mean, you know, let's do that. Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd love to see it through somebody else's viewpoint and their lenses, and you know,
1: how they might break that down. But we do want our viewers to know that we are going to cover him. Yes. Um, we will get there. We haven't written him off. We're not saying that we're not going to cover him, but we think that it's important to have the perspective. Of what else was out there? What what else was what else was police looking at, and what else are they still looking at today? And so, to give that overall perspective of what of the other possibilities that are out there, I think are important. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, thanks for listening today.
0: As always, we would love to hear from you. Find us on Facebook at Bodies in the Bayous, and you can always email us at Bayou's at hotmail.com. We would love to get some listener questions and comments, and join us next episode where we will be covering the story of Kimberly Pitchford. And as always, thank you. Thank you.